It's episode 68 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Lara Hogan. She's the co-founder of Wherewithal Coaches and Trainers and the author of a new book, Resilient Management. We're going to talk about the qualities that help teams thrive and how you can contribute, whether you're a leader or aspire to be. Lara, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm, gr- I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm glad you're back. You were in New Zealand. I was. I was. I was at um, Webstock, which is maybe the most amazing conference around. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I was there. Well, let's see. I had my son was just starting to walk, and he was backstage while I was giving a talk. So <gasps> oh, that that's was so cool. Yeah, was almost. He's ten years old now. So that was a while ago that I was there. But. Um, yeah, no, and they were great because it's like the like you're right. They're like the best people for organizing an event. Uh, they were like, no problem. Here's an intern who will look after your child all day. I was like, oh, right, holy cow! Right. So yeah, no, um, they're un- unbelievable. I, I ran a workshop there, and they actually had two what they refer to as special agents there to lend support. It was just it was just incredible. It's a magical place. Also, did you spend a little time? In we New spent, Zealand? Uh, so this is my this is my third year of just visiting, and we never. I feel like we never spend enough time there. It's just I wish that I could. I mean, I think we all dream of moving there. Is my is my <laughs> most recent guess is like Americans are like, let's go to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for a bunch of reasons, uh, not only the natural <laughs> beauty and amazing people. Um, yes. Uh, yes. But yeah, it is a little like this. It's a safe utopia where we can all go someday, I think. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I spent a, a week driving around the South Island and it was spectacular. It was just Amazing. everybody should go to New Zealand. Uh, and go to Webstock. And what, what was your uh, what did you workshop on, on? On management, I would imagine. You were, how did you guess? <laughs> Demystifying management. Exactly. Oh, nice. It is mysterious. Yeah. Oh, my God. It really is. What a black box of a role. And and really, like, our education system prov- provides nothing for, for us when it comes to that. That's what I found. Like, I knew, I learned how to communicate. I learned a little bit about collaboration and then all the basics, uh, some perspective on history and things like that. And then suddenly I had four people reporting to me when I was 27. Yeah. And I was well, just I'm like, what on earth? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, what on earth do I like? I know, I literally no idea what to do at I all. I mean, most people are like handed, are like handed the keys to the kingdom yeah. without even like history or like leadership community. Like, nothing. At least for me, I, they were like, yeah, this seems fine. Go for it. Yeah, Enjoy. Right. And I was like, cool. This is, let me, I guess, I, I feel like most of us in tech, Learn as we go when it comes to management. Very, very few organizations actually provide training right. for managers. Right, right. Is that still yeah. the case? Like, Absolutely the case, which is great for me. Yeah. Because I then come get to come in and help. So wherewithal is is we're effectively we go into companies and we provide trainings and workshops for managers of all kinds, mm-hmm. not just engineering mm-hmm. managers. Um, and then we also coach folks one-on-one. So and again, it's not just managers, as you said in the beginning, like leaders, emerging leaders, people. I, my, I like to joke that like people are management curious, you know, like people who <laughs> yeah. are like thinking about it, wondering if they, um, if they might want to try it out. And it's hard. It's hard to like figure out how to dip your toe in slowly without just like the, the huge chance of failure, which is obviously the thing that we want to avoid means you're probably impacting a lot of people. So it could be a very yeah. scary prospect. Yeah. 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 Well, it's people's careers, you know, right. like their, their future, their, uh, Right. And things like that. Um, yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, I was just looking through the books you've written. They're all very, very different. 
You have uh, <laughs> Designing for Performance uh, that yeah. you wrote for O'Reilly. I remember uh, when that came out. Um, and then you wrote a book on public speaking, demystifying mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. and now management. So, so give me just a little bit of background, because you were also a vice president of engineering at Kickstarter, weren't you? I sure was, yeah. And it's funny, in, in the list of books, um, there's, like, there's like a half book that like I half count called Building a Mobile Device Lab that was published um, by a publisher that like went out of business right after it was published. Oh. So like, it's like a half, it's like a, it counts as half, but yeah, yet another different one. So I, I was the VP of engineering at Kickstarter. It's where I met, um, the other co-founder of wherewithal Deepa Supermanium, who, you know, right? Oh yeah. Deepa, Deepa was on this program, um, nice. talking about her work on the, um, the Clinton campaign, the Hillary Clinton campaign wow. and, uh, yeah. and the product work that they did there and stuff like that. Uh, and then, yeah. And you two started up this, um, this, uh, this company yeah, together. Exactly. So we, we met there. She was the VP of product. I was the VP of engineering. Before that, I was an engineering director at Etsy. So I oh, led nice. like product infrastructure teams, meaning like we built the platforms and tooling that, that product engineers used to ship stuff to the, to our users. Um, and then before that, like a long series of like startups, I'm actually a self-taught front end developer uh -huh. by trade. Um, and so it's kind of been like a like many of us, a long and winding road yeah. that's not nonlinear to get to where we are today. <laughs> <laughs> but includes most of the cool Brooklyn companies. So you got that. Really cool. I, I really hit the the mission-driven Brooklyn companies okay. hard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lots of um lots of, you know, also B corporations, right? Like the the social values driven organizations. I've been really enjoying continuing down that that line of work. I've um now that I've switched to working for myself, I've had a chance to work with a bunch of different kinds of organizations. Like I, I keep on thinking about how, you know, as we get more and more experience at one kind of company, it means we get experience being one kind of leader. And it's so important to work with a spectrum of companies of diversity of different sizes of organization and stages of company and like amount of hierarchy and like amount of history, oh, yeah. kind of like see the spectrum of leadership styles, not just management styles, but leadership styles that people employ. Have you been at, at like a pure nonprofit? Like like Deepa, your your co-founder is now over at the ACLU. At ACLU, yeah. yeah. So actually it's funny. I did a workshop for them last year and that was the closest I've come yeah. to working for a legit nonprofit. It seems yeah, like yeah. a whole world to what I've experienced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I have not, but uh, but that friends who have um, also say, you know, it is, a, there, there's a different kind of management style, but um, right. But let's talk a little bit about this concept of uh, resiliency. Um, it's really interesting because I had a bunch of preconceptions going into the book. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, for example, you have this whole section on leading through crisis and stuff like that. Yeah. Right? And I assumed that you meant something is happening to the company or something is happening to the product. Right. Right. Like that. Like, and I, for example, I have this, uh, this talk that I've been giving for a few years now in which I tell a story from the history of Typekit. In mm. which uh, we had the, the the weekend before Christmas, uh, the the back end just kind of melted down. Oh no! Um, yeah, and there was a whole and it's this whole story about like us going through the weekend and everybody canceling their their skiing plans and um, oh. and I use this as a way of setting up. We, the spoiler is uh, by Monday we had solved the problem and fixed it and it was amazing. Oh, but here's yeah. what, but here's what we learned, right? And here's right. the things that worked, the things that didn't. Uh, but most importantly, I said I use the word equanimity. Um, mm. uh, which is uh, a flavor, maybe a component of, I think you need that in order to have resiliency, but this idea of having emotional stability in times of crisis. Yes. 
Uh, yes. But for me, I, yeah. I, I've always been thinking about it like that, or like some like her company in some in some big PR fiasco, or or mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or even I mean, in the life of a startup, I see this with our founders all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, there's a patent lawsuit out of nowhere. Oh, there's you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and how do you lead through all of that? But what I got from what you were talking about is that these are all. You you can you can sort of build up for those kinds of events, but there's also the sort of thing that just the team is in crisis. Yeah, right. Like yeah. The, the, the the relationships are not working, or um or the great example you had of like half of my team has visas and all of a sudden the government has changed the policy and they are freaking out. Yeah, and, oh, and like, by the way, we're gonna control. Yeah, right. and by the way, we're gonna do a product launch next week. But right. everything okay <laughs> right. at home? Good. How was your weekend? You know, like. That kind of stuff. So anyway, I'm I'm going on a little bit too much, but but uh, no. your notion of of crisis and the resiliency there, I thought was a lot uh, richer than just like just like oh we're panicking because something's happening to the product. Right, right, right. I, I I feel like, I mean, I would love to hear. I, mean, I should go back and watch a video of your talk because I would love to hear how you. Well, <laughs> thanks. I'll put, a, I'll put a link in yeah. the show notes. Everybody beautiful, can go watch. <laughs> you know, we're human beings. Um, we bring our full selves to lo- to work, whether we like it or not. And that means that crises that are happening externally to your organization's environment, like the government, um, like Ferguson, right? Like Gamergate, mm, this yeah. stuff is going to have an impact on, on the managers, on the leaders, and on, of course, the people who are on your teams, your teammates. Um, and so it's really, really, really important to think about when you're in a leadership position, what you can do about it, how you can prepare for it, because it's going to happen, and like how you can make sure that you and your team are able to to be resilient through what are effectively incredible crises that are deeply affecting us and the and our loved ones too. Yeah, it's hard. So how do you work up to that? Like it, yeah. it, it feels <laughs> it feels a little bit like. Uh, uh, really like your book is coaching us like, like, all right, step one, like we're going to learn how to throw the ball and step two, we're going to learn how to catch it. Right. Like right. it's like, right. let's go right to the basics here. So, um, yeah. you want to you take us a little bit through, you know, how would you start if, if, uh, if you were coaching me at 27 and I just got four reports and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally. So first things first is like getting to know your teammates. And I, I tried to make a deliberate choice in the book to refer to people as teammates and not direct reports because, yeah. I've worked within so many organizations where management is not explicit. It's like you are responsible for some other humans, but they may or may not quote unquote report to you, Mm. especially in organizations where there's like, again, quote unquote, a flat hierarchy, which is not a real thing that exists. Uh, Um, There's always going to be implicit hierarchy or implicit power dynamics. So like, again, these are your teammates, get to know them. Everybody's super different. Um, And not everybody's like you. I think that one of my, my early mistakes as a manager was to project my desires, mm. my strengths, my weaknesses onto the people who I was working with. It's like, well, we all must be functioning. Obviously, this is how people must be reacting to blah. Or like, obviously, everybody writes everything on their calendar and takes copious notes and is thoroughly organized. And, you know, it's like, obviously, it's <laughs> patently false. Um, I remember early, early on, one of my teammates gave me the silent treatment because he was frustrated with our product decision. And I was like, flabbergasted silent treatment. Like, what are we 12? Like, I don't even understand. And I, I, I realized like there's so much in like getting to know each and each person as an individual, because before you can actually strengthen your team, you've got to understand what everybody's bringing to the table, personalities and, and issues and like what they care about and stuff like that. Right. Right. So that's number one. Have you, <laughs> have you ever had any experiences of like working with 
surprising differences in the individuals around you? Well, one thing I came to learn pretty early was that I thrive with ambiguity. Uh, <gasps> and, and I kind of freak out a little bit if there's too much structure, right? Yeah. Um, which I think, I think it's great for early stage startups and kind of terrible in corporate world. Um, right. So for example, when I got to Adobe and I suddenly had this huge team I just remember people absolutely freaking out when I would give them answers about like, who knows? The future is wide open. We can do anything. <laughs> They're like, anything, you know? <laughs> right. So, um, so that was an, uh, one, exa- one example. Another one is just like identifying who would like to be praised publicly for their accomplishments <laughs> and who and, – and some people just absolutely being terrified of like, please don't call me out in the meeting, you know, you know stuff like that. So, yeah, there's, there's been some examples of that. I love it. You just touched on two different frameworks also that I, I kind of walk through in the books. The one is this uh, like first one-on-one questions list mm-hmm. where like we actually, you know, I recommend that you have, you walk through a couple of, they sound kind of cheesy at first. Like, you know, do you prefer to receive recognition publicly or privately? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you pr- prefer to receive feedback? Like what makes you grumpy? Stuff like that. And that's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a really important like first step in getting to know these people as individuals, but also you touched on uh, one of humans' six core needs at work, which I talk about all the time these days. Uh, the acronym for this framework is biceps, like a muscle, you know. Um, oh, yeah, but yeah. you touched on the predictability core need. So the predictability core need, which is the P in biceps, is like how much certainty and ambig- or ambiguity do I have in the future? And and this is a weird one because we're all different in terms of how much predictability we need. It sounds like you need very little. You actually thrive in an environment where there's little predictability. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It makes me uncomfortable if it's too right. predictable. <laughs> Everybody needs a different balance. Like your your teammates at Adobe, it sounds like they wanted way more predictability. Like that, your answer was not exciting to them. Yeah. It was like no, terrifying right. to yeah. them. So predictability, just like a couple of the other core needs and biceps, um, everybody's different. And so step one in terms of the building resilience is first, just like getting to know what you're working with organizationally and also with your teammates. That's interesting. The, um, uh, the, and also the juxtaposition between predictability and sort of consistency, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I am a big fan of consistency. Um, I think you referred to it as like fairness, right? Like yeah, we're, yeah. I, I'm going to try to behave the same way that I can with each one of the, each one of my teammates at the same time, even if, there's no chance to predict the future and, and it's going to be hard for me at least to give you the structure that you need. Right. At least right. I'll treat you all the same. You know, um, I think it's easy to get those confused as well. Sometimes we really, we, I mean, again, as you said, fairness, it's like another one of the big core needs in our, in our, in the biceps acronym, like equality and fairness. We want to believe that everybody's being treated fairly and everybody has equal access to what they need in order to do good work. Yeah. So this stuff is like super core foundational. Mm-hmm. The next thing I start to think about in, in the book is and explore is how do you grow these folks? And yeah. like, we are all so different and most of us default to mentorship and mentorship is like advice giving, sharing what you've seen work and not work, you know, sharing pitfalls this person should avoid. And weirdly enough, people don't grow for mentorship, which is like so, so counterintuitive. Like we all, right. we talk about how we want to find mentors to help us, you know, develop and whatever. And actually mentorship is really good for when someone's blocked yeah. and needs to get unblocked, but actually not, not helpful when we, when we want to grow. There's other skills that we can use for that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, yeah. I have, I've experienced that kind of on both sides of the equations of like, Ooh, what do I do now? Oh, I know who to talk to. And right. that's kind of the mentorship model. I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, But for growth then, so if we do, if we are concerned with the growth of our teammates, and it's not just sitting in a room giving advice, where do we... Right. (laughs) There's three skills that I love. And I I just, 
I love talking about this stuff because it feels like if, if someone can unlock this in themselves, everything gets exponentially better. So the first one is coaching. So coaching is like, uh, instead of giving advice, it's asking lots of questions and helping this person introspect and explore the shape of the thing that they're working through or thinking about rather than giving them the answer. So like, Good questions, good open questions in coaching start with the word what, like what's important about this? What's another leader that you've seen do this thing? Like how, like, what do you want to emulate about them? Or Mm. my favorite one that I pull out all the time, uh, my partner can tell you, he probably is sick of this at this point is what are you optimizing for? (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody's optimizing for something different, you know, in in, in different situations. Um, So yeah, like coaching is good. Open questions, helping, not leading them to an answer, but helping them kind of connect their own dots. That's coaching. Sponsorship is feeling on the hook to help get this person to the next level by giving them visible developmental assignments, stretch assignments, like Hmm. um, throwing them in the deep end and and trusting, supporting them, but not giving them the answers. Being like, hey, uh, you've never done this kind of project before. I think it's going to map to your your goals and, and help you build some new muscles. Like, let's do this thing. And putting their name in the ring for, for leadership opportunities and, again, vi- visible and developmental assignments. That's that's sponsorship. And then the third one is feedback. And I spend mm. a yeah. lot of time in the book talking about feedback because it's terrifying and humans are bad at it. And it's also a critical skill. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about communications uh, and, and how we talk to each other and how we provide reviews, all of that stuff. But let's uh, let's take a little break first and hear from our friends at ExpressVPN. So you might think that nobody wants your online data or to snoop on you, but when you browse the web without anything to protect your privacy, you risk hackers, ad companies, and more collecting your data. And that does happen to people like us, which is why I recommend ExpressVPN. Uh, ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or your phone. It encrypts your data, hides your public IP address, and uh, all you have to do is download the app, click connect, and you're protected. ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it uses cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server to make sure that there's no logs whatsoever of what you do all online. It costs less than $7 a month, comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You should just give it a shot. Try it out. See if you like it. I use it all the time. I've If you've listened to shows in the past, you've heard me talk a little bit about how I have used this while I'm traveling, how uh, when I'm in the cafe and don't want, and and I'm on the public Wi-Fi. There's another way to use it as well, which I find as an expat living in London, uh, wanting to connect to some American websites that, uh, for whatever reason, filter their traffic uh, by geography. And so what I can do is just log on to the VPN, switch over to a server in New York, and suddenly everybody thinks I'm in America again, and I can see the websites that I want to visit. Uh, And that's for like streaming, sports, or whatever you want. Uh, Licensing is what it is. I'm not going to get into all of that. I think it's fine to do that once in a while if you want to see what you're doing. You want to hide your data. You want to tell somebody you're browsing from another place. That's entirely up to you. Give it a shot. Try it out. Uh, Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash presentable. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash presentable. Three months free with a one-year package. Take back your online privacy, expressvpn.com slash presentable. Thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right. So uh, we were before that just talking about how we talk to each other. Yeah. That's it's hard. That's hard. Fish- don't you wish we could just like all immediately intuit what everybody else around us meant rather than having to guess 
<laughs> get frustrated and oh, it's just the worst. Communication is the worst. In every part, in every part of my life, it is, it is, it is a, tra- it's a lot of work. Let me put it that way. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah. And it's also this crazy like skill you can get better and better at if, once you realize it. 100%. And I feel like, so that's why I dedicated an entire chapter to communicating effectively and like scaling up your communication. Because like, this is true when you're again, mentoring, coaching, sponsoring someone, giving them feedback. It's true when you need to roll out big news, especially scary news. It's important when you're disagreeing with something a, like a leader saying, and you want to push back. Like it's, this stuff is not easy. And I, I didn't find it was that easy to intuit also. Look, I, I'm a pretty good communicator, I used to think, but depending upon the context, depending upon who you're working with and depending upon how you feel about what you're communicating, this stuff can get so hard. And that's effectively a manager's job is like communicating effectively even when hard. Mm, yeah. Especially when hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can think about all the bad talking points that I've ever developed and how I wish... I wish I had known this stuff earlier. <laughs> um, but can you give me some sort of examples of that? Like yeah. when, it, when it's hard, when, I mean, I mean the, the classic, the, like uh, it feels almost like the, the rite of passage for a new manager is firing somebody. Oh, oh man. I remember the first time I had to do this. I was so ill-equipped and like my manager wasn't, wasn't around to mentor me through the pro- What I really needed was mentorship. This was not an opportunity for coaching. Maybe, maybe parts of it were, but like, you can't, it's too important to let someone fail at, right? It's a, a good firing for the first time. Well, it could be illegal um, for somebody to right, fail exactly, at. Exactly, precisely. You know? yeah, yeah, precisely. What a nightmare. Um, so for me, I got really lucky in that when, when I was going through this for the first time, I happened to be meeting with a group of other managers, like cross-functional managers that we met every other week uh, in this program called DENS that Paloma Medina, who was the learning and development director at Etsy, she had developed so to kind of help us strengthen bonds and get to know each other. And they totally supported me through firing. They, they taught me what not to say. For example, don't apologize. Right, right. That's A, a risk, B, not helpful in that, in that moment. Um, they helped me role play having that the difficult conversations leading up to the firing and also the termination itself. And they took me out to drinks after. And so for me, I got way better, way earlier than I should have just by virtue of having all of this different, um, these different perspectives and like support systems uh-huh. in place that I, I, again, got very lucky at. So like communication rule number one is like, know what you need to say before, know what you're trying to say before you need to say it. I don't even go into this in the book. I'm just like, this is, I wish I had remembered this to put it in the book, but like, this is so critical. Just knowing what is the message? What on earth are you trying to say to this poor person? Yeah. I'm sure you have some stories about oh, I'll tell you, uh, here's another, here's another tip. Make sure you're close to the door. Oh, <laughs> I had, I, that never would have crossed my mind until one time I had a woman get very, very angry at me. Um, oh. And I've done, I've had to. I've gone through layoffs where I've, right, I've done right. 15 in a day, you know, that kind of crazy sort of thing. Uh, but there was, there was one instance where, uh, I had like inherited a team as part of an acquisition and like, and it was just not working out. I've, that's another, that's another tip, which is yeah. when you, when you, when you do inherit other teams, it tends to be where people are put because they're not, because mm-hmm. they want somebody else to deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was, it was very clear with HR. It was very cut and dried case. And then I told her and she got super angry and she stood up and I was <gasps> like, Oh my goodness. I feel, I'm oh, actually no. feeling a little, Hmm. And then I realized like, Oh, she, you know, she's between me and the door. I can't get out of this room. Right. 
Right. And right. she had her what say, and I couldn't, you know, she ranted for quite a while and I couldn't leave. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. Like I didn't, I could have pulled out my phone. You know, like it wasn't, yeah. but at the same time, I was just, that was a thing that had not occurred to me that there's a physical aspect of this. Yeah. But anyway, well, I, but yeah. So I think a lot about desk positioning in, in any kind of difficult conversation, like chair positioning, like there's so much that goes into this. And I, I do touch on this a little bit in the book, like, um, like no, like, okay. If this is about to be an emotional conversation, try to make sure that the person who you're having it with is not facing a window where people could look in and see them crying, you know, like, like position uh, yourself so that they can yeah. have their back to like people seeing in. Also don't pick a phone booth to have a difficult conversation in. like yeah. give it some physical space and room around you. So it doesn't feel even more cramped than it normally is. Like there's so many physical considerations to take when you're having, yeah, a tricky talk. Ugh, yuck. Thank goodness I have the blessing now of like coaching lots of people through this stuff so that they don't have to make the same mistakes <laughs> that I did back in the day. Yeah, but yeah, yeah so yeah. I, you know, I think a lot about, about communicating effectively in terms of like being clear about what you know and what you don't know. So like getting at it, like, let's say you have to communicate. There's a major, you know, thing happening in the, com- in the company that you need to like tell folks about name up front. Here's what's changing. Here's what we don't know yet. And here's what's not changing. And also here's the next time you're going to hear an update from me mm. about the stuff that we don't know. Because people crave that clarity. That Again, that predictability core need. Like we want to know, we want to have some level of certainty about what's happening around us. And even if it's just to know what we don't, to, to name what we don't know yet, that's also really helpful in helping deescalate or amygdalas, which are that, that fight or flight response. Like what that, oh, yeah. what that woman in that room was going through was like her amygdala was hijacked, which means that her brain was going into overdrive and it, it told her prefrontal cortex, which is the rational, logical part of her brain to go on standby and the amygdala took over because yeah. it's helped us survive for millennia is that our amygdalas re- react fast enough to, to run and duck and jump and you know run for cover or whatever. And so we all have this as part of us. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this because this is a really core thing to understand as you're interacting with humans, their core needs, and especially communicating out sticky information. Have you ever seen the the like videos of uh, an armadillo when it feels threatened, and it does that like <laughs> clink, like like flips into this little metal ball? Right. Yeah, yeah. What was the classic response? I've that's, done. That's like, mine. That's absolutely. <laughs> in situations like that, I'm like gone. Yep. Peace out. Totally safe there's, now. <laughs> there's five um, common forms of resistance that people demonstrate, and that's one of them. It's like an escaping, avoiding behavior, which is oh, so, yeah. so normal. Like mine tends to be this other one, which is, which is referred to as bonding, which basically means like you go and seek out other people to verbally process with, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's important that those people agree with you. Mm-hmm. For me, it's more like I just need to like talk out loud at someone to like process what I'm feeling. Um, but definitely, bonding can also be like I need to go find allies. I need to go like drum up you know, support for my cause. I mean, let me just, if I could get just a, a quick bit of relationship advice then. If, you, <laughs> if, you, if you're the type of person that tends to shut down and you're with somebody who likes to uh, mm-hmm. sort of verbalize and connect, yeah. <laughs> what, do you, yeah, what, yeah. what is the right response to somebody who just needs to say it all out loud and get it all out? I, I'm totally, assuming it's just like, totally. I hear you and, and I agree. And, and there, there's also the thing that maybe, and, and, I don't think this is too much bias, but but along gender lines around men wanting to fix the problem mm-hmm. and women just wanting to be uh, heard and connect about yeah. the problem. Um, and I'm probably this, that's a gross yeah. generalization and there's tons of overlap, but um, but I've heard that and, and I've experienced that. Yeah, I've I've definitely heard that. I, again, I have no idea if that's like a real thing or not, but like sure. definitely that's something I've I've like 
personally, I'm a person who like, you know, I, I talk as I think being like, I, I don't like form a sentence before I have started it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I don't know whether that sentence is going to end. Yeah. Um, and usually, you know, can, you can imagine like me verbally processing out loud. Um, but everybody kind of, I'm gonna say like, everybody talks out loud for a different reason. Like mine might, might be, if I'm just talking and talking and talking, I'm like workshopping my thoughts. Someone else might be talking out loud to be, to feel heard. Right. Like right. the reasons could be different. So probably oh, yeah, the yeah. first thing at first is going to be like figuring out like, what is the end goal of that processing? Like it might be problem solving. Like we don't know. So figuring that out will be helpful because then you can figure out how to tell your response. Like, okay, let's say that the goal is to just be heard. Then if you in response reflect back in your own words, what you're hearing, that might be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may not have to come up with a, a new response. You may not have to say you agree. You could just be like, okay, what I'm hearing is blah. And that might be it. Who knows? If it's someone like me, we're like, I just need to verbally process. The other person could be a statue, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like I actually don't need a response. Um, but again, that's me. Like that's like what I'm looking to do is just like process out loud and talk out loud. Um, everybody's different. So my guess is like getting curious, asking some good, solid, open questions that start with the word, what about like what's the end result that would be helpful? Or like, what's the, what's the, I don't want to say like, what's the purpose? Cause that sounds really judgy, <laughs> but like finding a not a less judgy way of saying like, Hey, what's the point of this? <laughs> it might be helpful. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And and this is solid advice in teams as well. Uh, just this, yeah. my experience is uh, in leadership and, and management for, for many years has been many times when people just come to the off, come to my office and, and say like, I got to talk to you about something. And they just talk for a half an hour. And then they say, yeah. that was so helpful. And then they leave. And right. I realized I never said anything. I just sat here the whole time. So, Oh, my goodness. This is the thing about coaching. So like in coaching, all I'm doing is listening, reflecting back what I'm hearing, and asking questions. I'm really not doing any problem solving. And it is surprising to me. Maybe it shouldn't be at this stage. But it's surprising to me how much that's all people, most people need when they come to me for coaching. They actually don't need advice. They just, no one creates space to just be heard for a while. In fact, if I'm being honest, that's why I have a coach. I need someone that I can pay <laughs> to listen to me verbally process because I feel bad dumping that on most of the people in my life. Absolutely. Except for maybe my mom. My mom is like, a real, a, she's, a, she's a Methodist minister. She knows how to listen. Like that's her job by and large. Yeah. So she's really, she's, she welcomes it. But like, again, my partner, like it's going to take its toll after a while. So for me, having a coach where I can just verbally process and have someone witness it and also reflect back what they're hearing is really, really, really handy. It's a gift. Yeah, no, that's like, great. Men and women need that. It's amazing to me how how few opportunities I noticed that at least the men in my life have to have someone just sit and listen and create that space for just sitting and listening. Yeah, so absolutely. again, coming back to that trope, like maybe it's a, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a trope, maybe it's like yeah. a real thing. Like I think we all probably need some, Someone to just like listen sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no, no. I've uh, and on this podcast a number of times uh, uh, made reference to how I, I I I talk to startup founders all the time, and they're like, "Oh my god, I don't feel like I have anybody to talk to." Because that like is a super lonely job. You can't. <clears throat> pardon me. You can't even talk to your co-founder about some of your anxieties. Like for example, I'm anxious about the performance of my co-founder. You know, like right, who do you talk right. to? And you certainly can't let any of the employees see that anxiety. Right. No. So. Um, or, or maybe, but in, 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 in controlled and confident, vulnerable, vulnerable ways. But I, I say, you know what, just like, go see a therapist, just right. book an hour a week for you to go talk 
to somebody uh, so who helpful. has nothing invested in the outcome except that they have compassion for you. Like, just right. go do that. And you'll learn a whole bunch about your brain. But right. um, uh, but yeah, that's that's like a, a standing sort of uh, theme that keeps coming in and out of the this podcast and, and all my work. So it, it's great. I love that. It's, it's actually, so I, I touch on this a little bit in the book in the terms of, um, I coined this term called manager Voltron, which mm-hmm. is like, it's like a crew of support that you amass for yourself. That's like a diverse group. So it's not just people at your workplace, but people outside your workplace too. It needs to be like, again, like a spectrum of different kinds of support. Like everybody needs different things from their manager and your manager is just one person. And often, again, as you said, like if you're a founder, you don't have a manager, like you are your manager. Um, So it's important to have, so the reason why I call it a manager of Voltron is I imagine like your ideal manager, everybody's got a different ideal manager and like you need different components of that manager. Like maybe you need a good feedback giver or for me, I need someone to help me verbally process stuff. And one is an arm and one's a leg like that eighties television show Voltron that all comes together and, you know, Um, and so actually I create a little bingo card that's in the book to help you brainstorm who is already in your Voltron crew of support for the different things you need, again, a good coach, a good mentor, a good listener, a good sponsor, someone who gives you, you know, developmental assignments. And also to brainstorm, to figure out like what spaces are blank. Like what are you missing from your crew of support that you might need? So for for many people, uh, probably who are founders, like they probably don't have a spectrum of people who can just let, let them let them talk, who, does, who don't have a horse in their race, who can just sit there and listen um, and give them support that way. Interesting. Um, yeah, no, I really like that idea of... Uh in a way, being confident about your limitations. Yeah. I've, yeah, I found one of the most effective things, even from a leadership perspective, is being very confident saying, I don't know. Yeah, right. And how well that worked, yeah. It's amazing. Well, also, given that you are so comfortable living in ambiguity, I bet you are more equipped than many people to confidently say, I don't know, and not have a worry about how that's going to be perceived. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly that. Um, I usually follow it up with, but I certainly can find out. Yeah, right. And here's the medium I'll give, I'll report back to yeah, you. Yeah, here's, here's all the, yeah, the, yeah. the build, build, a, build a framework around it for like, yeah, I don't know what it is. But like even giving that answer, I, uh, I remember saying that directly, uh, giving a presentation from the board of directors at Adobe, you know, there's, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, isn't she in charge of like, uh, uh, Comcast, like, you know, like, right, wow, right, these right. are totally. there. And somebody asked me this direct questions and I said, Oh, I don't know, but mm-hmm. we have this whole, like, I have this great team and here's how they figure this stuff out. And so I'm sure we'll have an answer yeah. next, next time you're back here. I'm sure we'll have an answer, but that kind of stuff, um, is so much better than trying to fake your way through the, cause everybody <laughs> sees it, especially your team. will see you try to fake your way through it. So yeah, they mm. can smell it on you. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Uh, and so you have sort of a, uh, almost like a model, a maturity model stages that, uh, that teams go through, um, for, and, and and it it was interesting to me to see that this, these are not like, here's four stages. And at the end you're resilient, but it's like, here's four (laughs) stages that you will continuously find yourself in one of these at all times, right? Like just looping around back and forth. And it reminded very much of the growth of companies, for what works great when we're a dozen people sitting around one conference table is going to fail when we're 50 people. 100%. And so, yeah. So, and so we're back at this beginner stage. But anyway, take, take me through some of that. Yeah. So that's, um, this is Tuckman's stages of, of group development. Bruce Tuckman uh, shared this. Of course, he named it after himself because, you know, it's business jargon. You have to name it after yourself. In 1965, um, 
I have cited this Wikipedia page more times than I can count at this point, because honestly, every team, like atomic unit of an organization also goes through these stages of team, team development. So the first one is forming. Like when the group comes together in its new state, the team might have a name or like a mission or like some understanding of why y'all are there, but team norms aren't totally formed yet. So the next stage is storming. Again, it's business jargon, right? So it kind of has to rhyme with one another. (laughs) Um, But so storming is like that friction state. It's it's, because you have this collection of strangers and now you're trying to all work together. And so necessarily there's going to be some friction. There's going to be some clashing, some confusion. And I feel like lots of people try to avoid storming. Like they come together in the in the forming stage. They're like, this is brand new. This is so exciting. It's gonna fail. Like this, this, it smells like failure if we don't like each other or if we argue with each other. Like that's failure. And actually, that's not true. It's just a really necessary step you need to go through as a group to figure, figure each other out, figure out how you're gonna work together, figure out what your norms need to be, you know, what processes, how you're gonna collaborate, how you give feedback. And so you have to go through that stage to get to norming, right? Where you identify some team norms and processes, and then eventually you get to performing, which is that flow state Mm. where everything's feeling good. But as you said, it's a cycle. It doesn't like end at performing. It's not like you're you're like, check it off the list. We're performing for the rest of our team's life cycle. Nope. Anytime something changes, like the manager changes or, you know, the mission, the company changes or like OKR shift, like it's a quarterly, you know, whatever it's going to restart with those forming stage feelings again. Like it's a, it's a continuous life cycle, which can be infuriating, but truly the more practice you get with this, the easier it is to figure out how to move your team through those stages. And also the more clarity, I, 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 I keep on using this phrase. It's like dumping buckets of clarity on a situation, which we've talked about so much already saying what you know, what you don't know, uh, when you're going to find out more information, like that stuff is so helpful to helping the team move out of storming and into norming again. So the norming one is the one I'm always fascinated by because I find like there's some level of documentation mm-hmm. and that documentation can be word of mouth, right? Like it does, yes. it can be just like everybody knows or whatever. Like, um, but I feel like the more you invest there, the shorter the other cycles can be to get you back to performing. 100%. As long as that documentation is, is like up to date. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, I mean, I don't even like the, necessarily the, the term documentation because it sounds right. like, well, didn't you look at the wiki? You know, like, no, oh, right, no, no. Right. But if there's, um, but perhaps like the way you do onboarding for new people, yes. right, has yeah. a whole system and you have like, here's your buddy and here's like your first task is the same for everybody. Like, you know, for, for all of the engineers that we would hire, your first task is add yourself to the about page and then you get to do a deploy right. your first day on the job. And like your whole, your whole stack has to be configured to give them do that. And here's the person who's going to help you. And that rotates, and, you know, all those sort of, we had all of those things and those are norms, yes. right? Like, yes. yeah. Uh, and so I'm always sort of interested in, and I hear all sorts of companies doing all sorts of different things around that kind of stuff, but that just feels to me like a, uh, a method for inclusiveness. 100%. And, and again, a predictability coming back to that core need, like the more, the more we can dump buckets of clarity yeah. on a situation, the more our core needs might be met. And again, as you said, it helps us move through it. In fact, in the book, I, I walk through a bunch of different ways you can kind of document these things, different things. Also, you can document like roles and responsibilities, for example, like we all probably have a different idea on our team of how an engineering manager, a product manager, and a tech lead should be working together. You might have like a career matrix for 
all those three roles in like a ladder or like a company-wide skills matrix. Um, the one that I like to 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 demonstrate is like a out-of-the-box one is a Venn diagram of those three roles to say mm. what responsibilities you each share and what's distinct for the three roles. And they can kind of move around based on what team you're on. I have a, a blog post on this, but I also have a bunch of stuff in the book about this. And like that stuff is so helpful for that dumping buckets of clarity and also helping people understand what those team norms are and like move through that cycle. Yeah. There's, there's yeah, yeah. the sky is the limit with like team again, hand wavy, hand wavy documentation, just like team norm expectations. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then, yeah, performing in that flow state. We, we actually we were talking about that on a personal level, just a few episodes ago on the podcast, mm-hmm. but, um, what does that look like in the teams that you've been a part of? Oh boy. It just, for me, the most visceral like experience of performing has been when my my organization Etsy product infrastructure we used to do Friday demos like a show and tell, uh-huh. and we used to have it every other week, and everybody was encouraged to show something. It wasn't like you shipped something and therefore you should show it. It was anything that was in progress or a hack that you'd recently learned, or like one person took the week off to run a marathon, so he showed his picture of him crossing the finish line, mm. and it was just the energy in that room was always my indicator of where we were as a team. Like how comfortable are we all sharing? How comfortable is everybody to show half-baked things? How comfortable is everybody talking about failures that week? Which of course is like a psychological safety component too. But for me, when that meeting was like all high fives, all celebrations, even over the tiniest, funniest things, that was my indication. That was my the, how I felt that the team was in that performing flow state, which is funny because it had nothing to do with business outcomes. It was just how we yeah. how we behaved as a as a as a unit rather than a collection of strangers. I would also probably wager it had something to do with business outcomes, and <laughs> that it was a, yes, right? right. Like there's right. a correlation when like the team An is high fiving and hey, look at that, you know, like the product is getting much better and. I would hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Or else, or else we're all just having a great time at somebody's dime. Right. So. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny. Cause I think that we all, we all, especially as managers, we, we lose that internal barometer of success. Like we know what it felt like to be successful as an individual contributor. We were shipping or like we had some measurable goals or whatever. But when you become a manager, you lose that internal spidey sense of like what productive looks like. And so we, we cling to those those spidey senses, like everybody high-fiving. And like, that's, I think that that is better to help individual managers determine their new internal barometer of what success looks like than anything else. Like what is the energy in your room, in the room when the team gets together? And like, what are the, again, indirect, as you said, like outcomes, the business outcomes of that, that kind of energy and dynamic. Interesting. Well, here's one that I've, uh, that I use back in, in my startup days that I've always been curious about, like, would I do that again? Or was that a, I know it was effective, but was it appropriate? Maybe it's the word. Which was <laughs> okay. painting a very stark competitor for us to go against. Oh, that's such a motivator for it some is, people. It is not a- for some people. That's where I'm right because I am certainly not like uh, like lots of sports metaphors or like come on, let's go crush them or any of that. Right? Right. 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 I find that really aggressive, uh, and I find it off putting when I like in situations where I have had managers or CEOs or whatever above me. And I'm just like, ah, like, and certainly not military metaphors and stuff like that, but right, I've been on, right. te- I've been on teams where that's, where that's part of the culture and I'd never fit in well in those teams. So I didn't, <laughs> didn't have it like that. Right. Um, yeah. but, but you know, we were, let's say at the time, a 20 person team and there was a, a there was a very well established company that first tried to acquire us and we said no, and then just went head on against us. 
right? And they had just, they, they were a public company. They had huge resources. And so, it, you know, for me as the leader of this smaller team, I'm like, we're the Rebel Alliance and the Empire is coming after us. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. works so well. And, and, I, and I believed it too. It worked on me. Like, it was like, yeah. they are not going to, like, they're not just going to use their, their uh, established power to crush this innovation that we're doing, right? So, fr- framed all that that way. And I thought, it was, I thought it worked pretty well. But again, I, like, you know, I don't know. That's also kind of a negative way of framing things. Us well, against I them. think it sounds like it was effective. Like, I, I don't think that there's anything like, it doesn't squick me out to hear that <laughs> story. Good. It's like an unethical thing. It's, it's funny because, again, that's so motivating to some folks, but not motivating to others. Like, I remember back in my performance days, like trying to get people to care about web performance. That storyline, that narrative worked yeah. for in many cases. Like, you know, I would try to get someone like a like a business owner to care about making your website faster. And I was like, hey, look at this competitor's website. Like our competitor's website is so much faster than ours. And that could sometimes was motivating, but other times it wasn't. And I would need to use a different lever. It's all about getting curious about what the people in power care about in those yeah, cases. Absolutely. They're always so different. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I'll tell you what, my experiences in the corporate world have been that that also works from a competitive perspective, but it tends to be against other teams in the same company. Ooh, because yeah, well, in some, because generally the way that a lot of corporate life works is around competition for resources. Yeah. Headcount, headcount and uh, budget and whatnot. And like, and so, yeah. So anyway, I found that, I found that a bit troubling. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to necessarily end on a a negative note, but we are sort of running out of time. Uh, so, (laughs) so, um, so why don't we just like, uh, at at the end here, advice for people who think like, you know, actually, despite these two going on and on about how terribly hard management is, I think I want to do this. Um, (laughs) so the, the, you know, I know a lot of people that listen are sort of in the, um, design field, uh, individual contributors considering a path towards leadership, where to start? What do you think? Totally. I think that the, the first question I like to ask people when they're like exploring this is like, cool. Like why, what is your, what's, what are you hoping you get out of this, uh, exploration? Because some people want to try out management because they want to amass power, mm-hmm. no judgment. That's totally a thing. Sure. Some people want to try it out because they want to change their, the environment around them and they don't know how to other than that, some people want to try it out because that's actually how you make more money in your company. That's yep. not every company, but some companies. Or like y- you get more power when you become a manager. Like every everybody's yep. going to have a different answer to that question. So I think that the first question is always like, cool, why? No judgment. Everybody's going to have a different reason. That reason's valid. Then once you have that answer, you can figure out, is, does, is management going to actually help you do that thing? Because <laughs> like <laughs> in some organizations, becoming a manager actually gets you less power. Mm-hmm. Like individual contributors have all the power or you think you're going to have more decision-making power, but actually you get tied up in more red tape. Like there's, yeah. it's, every company is different. It's so like, it's cool. So second question is, will management actually get you the thing? Talk to some people about the likelihood or not of that happening. And then the third thing is find yourself people who are going to support you. Like your career of support is going to be invaluable. Good feedback givers, people to riff with, people to give you advice, a good mentors, good coaches, um, 
that's definitely going to be like the the most critical step as you dip your toe into management. And there's so many different ways to do it, right? Like managing an intern or uh, becoming a mentor or becoming responsible for a program, even if you're not responsible for responsible for like the people directly, like a, like a dotted line relationship. There's so many different ways to try it out. I'm, I'm optimistic that people can find one. There's plenty of books out there. Like the manager's path by Camille Fournier talks about how to kind of dip your toe in and explore this a little bit. But yeah, I think that that, that critical step of finding your crew of support, that's, that's the number one piece of advice I would give. Yeah. 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 And the path there typically uh, in my experience has been to, to uh, step up and take a bit more responsibility and show that you can handle it. And, and, and until the point when somebody's like, well, somebody has to lead this new team. Hey, you know, this person over here has been stepping up and stepping <gasps> up and to frame that though, not just that like, as this blanket, like go take, take on more, is to find the things your manager is the most anxious about mm-hmm. and say, if, really you, if, you yeah. can, if you can relieve the anxiety of your manager, you tend, tend to be pretty successful in an organization, I think. That's great advice. Yeah. yeah 100%. So. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Well, this is great. The book is called Resilient Management uh, from a book apart. Uh, and um, I think if everyone should just go look in the show notes. Get the link and go see this. Uh, it's just going to help so much. Oh, anywhere else we should send people, by the way, before I – Thank you for all your hard, uh, your, your great, your hard <laughs> advice, but your great, great advice as well. Uh, wherewithal. Yeah, definitely. Wherewithal. Um, wherewithal.com. Please put in the show notes. I'm so excited Got for it. people to check us out. Again, yeah. if you, if you want some more support, like we are here to coach you and we are also here to bring workshops, cross-discipline, cross-functional workshops to help anybody who's like a management or an emerging leader get the support that they need. And you're on Twitter at? Lara underscore Hogan. Great. We'll send people there. Uh, This was fantastic. I appreciate it so much. Uh, Thanks for all your advice. Thanks for having me. You bet. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.